0: Welcome to Life List, a birding podcast.
1: Hello, hello. Welcome, friends and listeners. We are back here at LifeList with another episode. I am with both Alvaro Jaramillo and Molly Brown. I am George Armistead. Welcome, guys. How are you guys doing today?
0: Hey, doing pretty well.
1: Yeah, doing well. What's happening in West Virginia, Molly?
0: Well, I think about this every time we start the podcast, because I know you're going to ask me that, and I've always <laughs> got the same thing to say. If I'm home, I'm pretty much in a routine. Uh-huh. But uh, yeah, it's it's starting to feel like fall here. I think it'll be a couple weeks before this episode comes out, but just starting to feel fall migration ramping up, cooler mornings. It's been really nice. Bring um, on
1: those cold fronts. Bring on the cold fronts.
0: Yeah, it's it's coming. <laughs> which is really exciting. I have spent a few hours today trying to figure out how to use iNaturalist to have the equivalent of a patch on iNaturalist. And I think I finally have it figured out. I've been wanting to kind of see all of my observations from the new home front and put them all in one place. So that's been my morning.
2: Nice. Hey, (laughs) can if you're like becoming an iNaturalist, pro is there a way to actually like let's say i'm going to um chile let's say and mm-hmm. i want to make kind of like a illustrated checklist of the butterflies Ooh. can can i do that out of i naturalist do you know
0: well i can attempt to answer this i'm definitely not an iNaturalist naturalist pro but I'm also realizing how spoiled we are on a lot of the functionalities of eBird for things like that. And, and birds of the world where you can, say, look yeah. at a family or something. Because you can go to iNaturalist on the website. You can sort it by Chile. You can break it down into major groups. Like, I think I think there's an insects category. Oh, wow. And you
2: well, can look it at it down. from
0: that way. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if it gets more specific. I don't think that there's even like a butterflies and moths. So you can break it down a little bit. I've been wanting to just find a running list. I want to know how many tree species are in West Virginia. And I've been trying to figure that out. And I don't think you can really break it down in iNaturalist by more than plants. So I've been looking for something similar <laughs> and haven't found the perfect solution. Um, one thing, iNaturalist has a lot of forums and things where people are discussing that. It's just not as easy to find the information.
2: Oh, okay. No, I mean I guess one of the things is so taxonomic that I naturalists, you know, trees, right? A palm tree is a palm tree to us, yeah. but it's really a completely different kind of plant. So but they should have almost like a, a non-taxonomic like everybody knows these are trees and everybody knows these are butterflies even though within butterflies there's moss that are related to them that aren't you know, we don't think of as butterflies and so on. So but it'd be kind of cool if you could just output almost like I'm going to New Guinea. Show me the slime molds that I might be able to find there. Like almost like if they pick the top photos, almost like Eber does, and then you know you could have a little illustrated checklist, a little species pack. That'd be amazing. You know? It would
0: be. I did do something similar when I was in Arizona a couple weeks ago, and I just wanted to see. Um, the herbs, but I I went by reptiles and I went by amphibians. So you can see the species for each of those. And I did that for, I think I did it for Pima County to actually Mm -hmm. break it down. Um, So depending on how broad you're wanting to look at something that may or may not be easy. But once you do that, you can filter by species. Um, You can look at like all the observations or you can look at the species themselves. And it kind of has the photo and that sort of thing. You just can't go... More specific than that. I've been trying to figure out. I I use I use Seek a lot as well when I'm out, just like quickly identifying things, which is really nice. And you know, connected to um, iNaturalist, it's kind of like Merlin, where it's not perfect for a lot of things, and it might give you a species, and I back it up to a, a genus level or something for the report because I don't, I'm not confident in that. But I feel again so spoiled on how you can look at taxonomic breakdowns and look at how different birds are related through especially birds of the world and kind of seeing yeah. how like a, a, one genus compares to another or something. And I'm struggling to find the equivalent in other forms of life.
2: Yeah. No, we're birds. Birds are cool. People know it. And we've invested a lot of time in making birds more accessible than other mm-hmm. things. But, but it, it always, it kind of always trickles down, right? We, it it's like the bird people sometimes are, you know, doing some things that, because there's more of them maybe, right. That eventually will trickle down to the slime mold folks. (laughs) Maybe the shell people, the shell people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, be quiet over there. You bird people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: But anyway, That's that's what I've been up to. Same I just downloaded
1: stuff. Seek as you guys were talking. I just oh, like, I, I've been using nice. iNaturalist but I and I've heard people mention Seek and I was like I'm going to get that right now. So I just downloaded it and I'll start checking that out. I, I'm loving iNaturalist for little critters and plants around the yard especially just trying to figure mm-hmm. that kind of thing out. I I have a, a lot to learn still about using iNet, but I do love it and uh yeah, be cool to learn some more about it.
0: It's really fun. I have a great tip for Seek that I made a mistake of right when you download the app, connect it to your iNaturalist account. And that way, every time you identify it, it will push over. But Ooh. if you don't do that first, you can't go back and add it in. So I have, I don't know, a hundred observations that I had put in seek before I connected it. And I can't move them over to iNaturalist now.
2: Hmm. Yeah, that is a good tip. Hey, um, assuming, um, you're, you know, you're. We well, you kind of go on this same train of thought of some apps and things that actually pertain to something that just happened recently here in Hapuna Bay. Is that there's a um, an app called, well, a site called Happy Whale, and Happy Whale, you can upload photographs of whales, in particular, their you know, the the flukes, the tails of humpback whales, and it'll uses an algorithm to figure out the actual individual and maps it and tracks it. So you can actually, if you see a whale, you can track your own whale forever. Right. Whoa. And we had a, so happy whale is, is great. Um, it's been, you know, organized put together by this friend of mine, Ted Cheeseman. And um, people are using it all over the world and a whale just showed up dead from our right? Fran. Yeah, yeah. exactly. In in our beach here, and Fran was, I guess, the second most reported whale on Happy Whale for years. Like since they know who Fran's mom was, who Fran's kids are, and they they know all of this history of moving back and forth to Mexico. But it appears to have been hit by a a a um, ship, and that's how Fran died. But I forget. Do they sense, know how old? old sh-
1: they, do they know how old Fran was? Forget.
2: I, I want to say the number 2004 might be the first time she was seen. Yeah. So so, I might be wrong. Yeah. But uh, on Happy Whale, um, people have been tracking this whale. It's one of the most seen, like in Monterey Bay and so forth. And it's just so outstandingly sad that one of the whales that many people have encountered and actually detected and logged in to this ends up dead because of a ship. Yeah. Um, So there's there's sort of this little. A lot of the whale folks are like, "Buy less stuff, everybody. Buy less Mm -hmm. stuff." You know, we have all of these unintended consequences.
0: um, Shipping, yeah,
2: from shipping. I also want to say that one of the things that the the good news story is that this is becoming more of a problem because we have more whales. That's part of it. There are Mm -hmm. more whales now than there used to be twenty years ago by quite a large margin right that's so, a good problem to overall, have i suppose yeah. yeah yeah it's like the population's going up but uh but a happy whale if you're in, into if you're even if you're not living near a place where you get to see whales just check it out go in on the site and just look at some of the tracked whales individuals what they've you know and it's uh, mainly a computer that's figuring out who's who i think human eyes look at some of this stuff every so often but it's an algorithm that's figuring out which whales, which one. So it's pretty, pretty amazing.
1: That is
0: amazing. Really amazing.
1: Yeah. Now, one of the questions I had for you, sort of similar thing, um, I've been meaning to ask you this is great white sharks. Is there, is there a similar, um, location? You know, you hear about these incredible migrations of sharks and white sharks in particular. Do you know of a is there a particular site you can go to and see information on that, or is it more published papers?
2: Ah, uh, that's a good question. There used to be this site where a lot of marine I think what do they call it? Like the Marine Predators Project or the Marine. And it's a site where that had a lot of big creatures in the ocean that are being tracked, sharks and um even a turtle. There's uh, there was also sea turtle.org. That was keeping some of that. So yeah, I I there is something. Uh some of these things are there with maps of where these creatures have moved from one place to the other. Uh but I don't have it offhand. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm probably one of our listeners hopefully will will chime in with that. That'd be an interesting thing to share. Yeah. Well, um we're doing something a little different today, guys. Um and before we uh Before we do that, um, I wanted to share a couple things here. Um, We're going to get to some listener questions soon, which will be fun. Uh, We've never really done that for a full episode. Um, I noticed it going kind of viral here in Philly right now is Love Park, which you might have heard of downtown right by City Hall, Dilworth Plaza area. But it's right next to. City Hall, downtown, Love Park. They've got these fountains. And just yesterday, there was a person walking their emotional support alligator around oh, yeah. at Love Park there. Um, I saw in, that. in the sprinkler. Yeah. And apparently it's a very friendly alligator, um, and uh, which is nice. But <laughs> yeah. I have to say, if I saw somebody walking an alligator around downtown... I would, I'm not sure how comfortable I'd be with that. Like, I, you know, I don't, you know, I, I don't, I don't care. It's sort of like some of these dogs. People say, oh, he's friendly. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know you. <laughs> I don't know that I'd trust you. And with an yeah. alligator, I think I'd be a little, um, I don't know, suspicious yeah. perhaps. What's
2: next? This is
0: news to me. Yeah. Alvaro, how did you hear about this? Was this a news story that <laughs> <I> s- <laughs> that went beyond Philly?
2: I think I click on really weird stuff cuz
1: I believe that story. That's, <laughs> that's, that's that is know, very
2: believable. Yeah. I, I get really weird things that come up on Facebook or what have you, you know. And it might yeah, it was on one of the socials I think unless it was one of the news items that I follow when yeah. I use I, yeah. I do
1: wonder where you draw the line with these emotional support animals. Like someone's <laughs> like, "This is my emotional support grizzly bear," and uh, I've gotten my at home. I have my emotional support king cobra. Um, right, you know, I, I. It's like, at what point do we uh, start to
2: question these things? I, I don't know. Maybe you guys disagree, and there'll be like gray areas. But I don't. Th- I think we should start with domesticated animals. Like, so if you want to have an emotional <laughs> support. Camel, I'm like, okay, that that's okay, but it's a lot of maintenance. Or like shark, no, (laughs) I don't trust those camels either. Yeah, I know, I know. But if you think about it, like some something that's domesticated has been through a process of sort of like getting to know humans over some time, Mm -hmm. right? So that seems like it's a little better, even though of course more people get killed by dogs in the u.s than alligators but still it's true <laughs> it's yeah. not that the data get in the way that's right well this
0: reminds <laughs> me of a conversation we've been having in the house on jumping spiders because we Ooh. talk about how they always seem so friendly and curious i love jumping spiders
2: out.
0: yeah yeah so maybe that's a good emotional support animal they're
2: so cute
0: hang yeah. out they are <laughs>
2: love those guys. I thought you were talking about jumping over spiders. <laughs> you should jump over the spider, okay? Let's we're jumping
1: spiders. Then <laughs> I, I have to say if jumping spiders were much bigger, I'm not sure that they would be as cute. Like if if they cute. were sort of like tarantula sized, I might be less inclined to like them as much as I do as it is they're sort of little tiny and furry guys and I think they're just, like I yeah. find them and I'm just like oh my god, so cute. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it's like those what is it tardigrades you know those little yes the uh what are they called the water bears water bears you know and they look kind of cute but then (laughs) if they were the size of a seal you'd be like oh my god get me out of here (laughs) (laughs) yeah well the other Um, uh
1: uh, quick aside here development was that my wife Kristen, uh she's like you know you're Hillstar's, Hillstar, Hillstar Nature is going pretty good, but small business. You know, I'm a friend of mine. Her husband uh, works in like advising people starting new businesses, new small businesses, and you know, might be good for you to just chat with them at some point. And I said, I was like, hmm, okay, yeah, maybe. And then I said, well, you know, what are the, what are their names? And she then kind of gave me a look like y- you're not going to believe me, and you're not going to want to maybe meet with them after I tell you. The couple's name is Jedi and Madonna. That's their name. (laughs) And I was like, at first I was like, there's no way I'm going to meet with a couple named Jedi and Madonna. And then I was like, wait a minute, maybe that's exactly who I should be meeting with. You know? Yeah. Jedi. I mean... It's apparently short for something else, but everybody calls him Jedi. (laughs) Jeduardo. (laughs) <laughs> that's it i'm sure yeah yeah
0: yeah well, you've got to hear what kind of advice they have for
1: i you. know yeah yeah
0: Hillstar nature might be paving a new course here
2: that's right jedi burden <laughs> yeah it, it'll be like you know about the force and stuff and you're like come on you know the force doesn't exist and then suddenly you, you levitate or something and you're like oh yeah geez, i better listen <laughs> friend of mine was like <laughs> meet with them you shall Yeah. 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 But I mean, I I, want to hear Madonna, uh, what she has to say about Hillstar Nature.
1: Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's sort of this is one of these Italian design, German engineering kind of thing. You get the best of both worlds.
2: Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, They're like the yin and yang of of opinions. You know, Mm -hmm. Madonna's trying to get you to go this way, and Jedi makes you want to. No, no, you can't do that. That's not logical. Madonna's like, But It'd be so cool. You know? Yeah.
1: Well, I'll let you know how it goes, guys. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is
2: gonna.
0: You happen. should take them out birding.
1: There, yeah, I think there that's
0: you go. a good way to vet them.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking that or beers or both. Anyway, I'll keep you posted on uh, on the meeting with Jedi and Madonna. I am looking forward to that. Hopefully, they're they're uh, not listeners, but we'll see. Um, maybe <laughs> maybe we'll convert them. Uh, anyway, we were going to do some listener questions today, and yeah, quite a few have come in, which is which is nice, um, including a couple right that Molly refer to our upcoming event in Colombia, uh, yep. the the Life List event in Colombia in Manisales for the first five six days, mm-hmm. then we move to Cali for the Co- Columbia Bird Fair in Cali. Um, it's really going to be a good time and uh some amazing birds and some amazing Colombian birders too and plenty of good food and drink as well. A couple questions we had. One was about if you need to be fluent in Spanish. And the answer is you do not have to be fluent in Spanish. Um, we, uh, the the first leg of the trip in Montesales there is pretty much going to be all English, although there'll be plenty of opportunities to speak Spanish if uh, if that is desired. And um, the second leg at the Columbia Bird Fair itself, it's uh, there will be translation uh, services of some ilk or another. Uh, in the past, there've been like headphones, sort of like UN style, you know, headphones <laughs> where they uh, have a translation or um, or it's, you know, translated in English on a screen. Uh, so I expect it'll be, there's enough of an international crowd there. Expect that, uh, that'll be the way to go. And that was a
2: question from Duke Tufty. And the other question from Bart Hutchins. Hey, yeah. Can I to say something about Spanish? The one thing you want to know in Colombia is how to spell the country name. Yes. It's... <laughs> You don't want to spell it with a U, like no. Colombia. It's Colombia with an O. Nothing offends the Colombians more than being misspelled. So yes. that would be the, my Spanish yeah. <laughs> suggestion. In, in fact, oh, my, no. my colleague Roger, uh, Roger
1: and I think Eliana as well, both they have t-shirts that say it's Colombia, not Colombia. You know, yeah. like with an O, not with the U. Um, yeah. So it comes up a lot. Unfortunately, one of the biggest problems is that spell check corrects it to mm. to the U spelling. So that often is part of the problem is that we've got yeah. like, multi, you know Columbia, South Carolina, Columbia, Maryland, and the company, British right? Columbia, the, yeah, British Columbia, all with U's, and so like spell check corrects it with the u and then i think people start to wonder oh did i spell that wrong initially or what but that is not helping matters at all no wars have started for
2: lesser things
1: that's true yeah that's true yeah yeah so that was one question the the other question about colombia with two o's and no U's is what airport we fly into and simplest thing um if you come would be to fly into Pereira, which is in the coffee triangle there. And then we transport to Cali. So flying into Pereira and out of Cali would be the way that works, which is pretty straightforward. It's international flights from both cities. So from Miami in particular, mm-hmm. and they're pretty short, under four hours uh, typically. So, So those are a couple of ones we wanted to knock off right at the top.
0: I'll add one more thing while we're on that trip um, to kind of talk about what Columbia bird fair is like, because I think for some U.S. listeners, um, if you've heard of bird fair, you might first think of the U.K. bird fair. That's essentially a giant trade show um, and isn't as heavy on the field trips and that kind of thing. Um, and it's really focused on just lots and lots of vendors for different um, birding companies and organizations around the world. However, the Columbia Bird Fair runs sort of like a giant birding festival that would be in the U.S. So when we're there, we will have some talks and lectures, I think, in the afternoons and things that we will attend. Um, But we'll also just be out birding for a lot of it and just extending the birding tour and going to different locations like you would for for a birding festival, too. So if you're curious how much um, Spanish or English you're going to hear, a, a lot of it will be just your typical out in the field birding and that kind of thing as well. I've, I've done talks for Columbia bird fair virtually in the past few years and they've been in English. So I know that there are enough English speaking (laughs) attendees that, that those talks are included as well. So I think that'll be good.
1: Yeah. Yeah, And some of the guest speakers that they've got lined up, some, some big names um, will be delivering their talks in English uh, as well. So yeah,
0: that's going to be great. But Yeah. Um, uh, as far as questions that we've gotten, so I've kind of combed through the, the life list email and we did put a new website up a couple weeks ago. Um, so now we've got some feedback directly on the website and it is really cool because we haven't really asked for questions that much from listeners, but we get a lot of input and it's fun. And when I was going through, I saw, well, let's start with recommendations on birding in Philly and in that area. And George, I believe that was directed toward you.
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I um, don't oh, know. Here you, we go. <laughs> yeah. Two hours later. Uh, right. Yeah. Like,
2: so there's this, there's this magic bush in the park right behind. There's this, there's this little tent. bob no, guy got lives in the tent. We're not we're like Chicago. to the right. It's really good. Yeah.
1: <laughs> there is a place I could tell you where. Yeah. See? There yeah. <laughs> we go.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well one of the one of the best birds I ever found was in was uh the first black headed golfer philly was in the parking lot of a gentleman's club and uh <laughs> explaining my uh you know how I ended up there um and uh <laughs> I was like, well, it's right next to a trash transfer station, and there's a little grass lawn outside, and people are like, yeah, George, okay, sure." and uh and i was like it was like six in the morning they're like yeah you probably spent the night there and i was like that is not that is unfair
2: unfair a characterization and uh yeah you're just recycling stuff
1: that's right yeah i'm just a recycler you know that's all i was doing there yeah
2: so yeah you. so
1: yeah trash transfer stations people that's uh that's where the good stuff happens you know no uh they're probably the the, the biggest most obvious place um is actually surprisingly unknown to a lot of people, especially in, even in and around Philadelphia, is the Hines National Wildlife Refuge. It's the it's number two eBird hotspot in terms of species diversity in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, has an has a it, it's it's one of these places. There's always birds there, so there's just it's a great refuge. It's the the country's uh, first urban wildlife refuge. Uh, goes back to the 70s. It used to be, I think it was Texaco Oil Land. The feds bought it up. And uh, it's a great site. And there's, uh, if you go on eBird, you'll see lots of information about that. One of the other great spots is Bartram's Garden um, in uh, West Philadelphia, Southwest Philadelphia. Um, that is a great spot as well. Kind of there, another spot where there's always birds. You know, some places you go, it's kind of seasonal. You can go in and there may not be much. But those two places, there's pretty much always some birds, uh, especially Hines, but Bartram's too. Um, those are two really good spots right in the city um, that are great. And um, if you're in the area, um, Peace Valley Park is, all, is I think, the number 3 eBird hotspot in the state in terms of species diversity. Number one is uh, Presque Isle State Park out in extreme northwest Philly on Lake Erie. Uh, And that's a phenomenal place as well. Harder to reach, a little more tucked away, but also phenomenal. But Peace Valley is tremendous, an incredible list of vagrants have turned up over the the years. And it's a place that always holds some birds. You go there any time of year, you're going to see something. And uh, obviously, migration seasons are probably most exciting. And that's probably true of all the places uh, we're we're talking about here. But really, all seasons good at those places. And, uh, And even, you know, right near just outside the city, barely, there's a place called Dixon Meadow. Short little loop, easy walking, nice boardwalk, again, pretty much all times a year, something good to see there, so anyway that's those a few spots uh we could get into you know i as as alvaro uh w- was fearful, I could go on at some length
2: on this, but uh, I'll keep it to those few hot spots to start it doesn't does Hines refuge have a different name too though that's kind of confusing for people from away,
1: yeah, in fact, many locals. Still refer to it by its old name, Tenicum, uh, which is the township, um, Tennecom Township. There it used to be the, uh, I think it was uh, Tennecom National Wildlife Refuge. They changed the name uh, to the Hines National Wildlife Refuge at Tenicum. Um and parts of that are actually in Delaware County, as most in or it splits uh, between Philadelphia and Delaware County, Pennsylvania. It's named after a senator who passed away in a helicopter crash. It was actually Teresa Hines Carey's first husband, um, and uh, he was a very well liked senator from the area back when until he passed. I think it was in right around 1990. Um, so yeah, it does. It's sort of like the Forsyth Refuge in New Jersey, which everyone still calls Brig or Brigantine. Uh, the, the Hines Refuge is still often referred to
2: as Tinicum. He knows that was like as almost <laughs> like if you had like you know practiced that. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, I, it, it is a source of confusion. He's
0: holding a stopwatch as he talks and he's like done. <laughs> it's
2: like the elevator pitch. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, Alvaro, we got the same question about California as a whole and then specifically closer to you as well.
2: Well, I'm, you know, it's weird. Um, I, I was asked to write that ABA book on California and I did so, but, uh, I don't actually travel around much in the state because I'm kind of a real, you know, if I'm around here at home, I kind of like to not spend time in the car, But which is exactly the opposite of of when a birder visits here and they want to know like, oh, where's the best place for white-headed woodpecker and stuff? I can can tell you where I've seen them in the past, but I don't kind of, um, you know, I'm not on the pulse of things in California and it's huge, right? I mean, this is why so many birders here that are kind of in the more competitive listing stuff, they do County lists because some of the counties are bigger than States, you know, I mean, practically. Um, So it's a really, that's a really hard question in a sense, but I would say that there are some, places that are absolutely or or situations that are absolutely kind of vital california the the ocean so the coast and also monterey bay or Hapoom bay pelagics or san diego pelagics although you know that there's some cool species down in san diego but the real numbers and the the masses that can show up sometimes happens up here that and also, there are things that you sort of don't think about, like this, the Central Valley is, is surrounded by these oaks, like an oak savanna that is unique to California, and there's a lot of cool birds that are sort of there. Some of them were, are not species yet, like, you know, sort of the, not considered species like the white-breasted nuthatch. but things like oak-tip mouse and, and you know, the, the yellow belt magpie, things like that are sort of in that zone. And I think that's kind of a neat place to visit and, you know, add the central Valley with tricolored blackbirds. And then to me that the mountains, any, any mountain or conifer forest in California sort of visit to see some of the other birds. So there's so much to see. I'm just kind of like, you know, um, really kind of going quickly, but here um, I think, uh, if, you, if you're ever in the Bay Area during shorebird migration and can catch some of the big masses of shorebirds in San Francisco Bay, that's pretty wild. You know, a place where in high tide, some of the shorebirds get together. Um, that is is pretty, pretty wild to see. And then the fact that in the Bay Area, there's just so much to see within an hour's drive. Um, so if you could land in San Jose or San Francisco and visit, you know, just a, a bunch of great places been um, pretty, sh- you know, an hour and an hour, hour and a half and see a lot of stuff. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I really got at the heart of the question, but there's just almost too much to talk about here in California.
1: Well, I, I would say when I visited you guys, you and Brian Sullivan a couple of years ago in winter there, I really loved that Elkhorn Slough area. And that should have good concentrations of shorebirds in fall, but seems like yeah. one of those spots that has good concentrations of birds all year all long. Time. And I also loved the uh the Central Valley um, birding as well. Just high volume birds, high volume blackbirds, high volume pippets and horned larks and
2: you know, and just a lot of birds. We yeah, geese. Yeah. yeah. Just you know. thousands of of ducks, you know. It's uh, it's pretty pretty amazing that that exists pretty close to here. So I go every year to just go see the geese and it's like, there's no lifer to be had or anything for me. It's just like, look at this, you know, spectacle.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those are a couple of good ones.
1: Now, Molly notice that West Virginia has been woefully uh, underrepresented in this question.
0: You know, I, I did notice that. (laughs)
1: couldn't help but notice right
0: i couldn't help but notice that's right well it's hard to talk about west virginia i'm gonna answer anyway by the way there you go you don't have to ask me for me to talk about it (laughs) but uh but it is hard to follow up with the spectacle because west virginia doesn't have something that compares to that um but you know west virginia is such a fantastic place to go to see breeding birds and i I truly am not just saying that because I'm from here. It's just a really incredible place to be in June and July, Um, especially if if you're in the east and you're in driving distance. You know, if I I can drive two hours right now and it'll be 20 degrees colder than it is here, Um, you can really get away from the heat and that kind of thing too. And it's kind of fun to fill a void where birding can be slow in other areas. But just first off, seeing the height of summer here, just the amount of biomass and just life around is so, so cool. Um, And you can also really do a pretty good job of cleaning up your eastern breeding species within a couple hours drive, kind of starting in more of the lowland Appalachia and getting things um, that are kind of bleeding in from the Midwest on the side or um, some of those species that Eastern specialties like Henslow sparrow too and um, a few of those other birds that are fun to get and then just getting up into the mountains. If I were to actually recommend places for people to go, Canaan um, Valley in kind of the heart of the mountains here in West Virginia is phenomenal and you get the, the whole range of breeding warblers that you would get anywhere in Appalachia including some of the highest elevation like Blackburnians and Magnolias and um, Nashville Warblers, those types of things. Veeries and Swainson's Thrush and Winter Wren and all of that. It's just a lot of fun and it's really beautiful. Um, and we also have the newest national park in the United States is yeah. here in West Virginia at New River Gorge. Oh, that's which was right. A, yeah. yeah was a national uh, river before and has been expanded into a national park. Beautiful, beautiful area. It's it's gorgeous, yes. It is just a very, if you want to go birding and feel like you're on a retreat, I would say come to West Virginia and enjoy that. And you won't have the crowds and (laughs) the chaos of some of the other national parks that I've been to.
1: I don't remember the name of that trail at New River where you walk out and you end up on sort of a promontory where you've got a view of the bridge and the gorge. Oh uh, yeah.
0: The Endless Wall Trail. Yeah,
1: that's a nice yeah. walk people should do.
0: That yeah, now. it's great. Just filled with uh Swainson's warblers, too. Yeah. There. <laughs> yeah. Really nice. Yeah. So that's my spiel for West Virginia. It's pretty fun in the winter, too, especially know, if you're into winter sports or skiing or that kind of thing. There's some pretty cool towns that have that and then we have a lot be skiing with golden eagles and rough legged hawks and
1: nothing wrong with that. Uh,
0: yeah. Evening gross beaks and crossbills and that kind of thing too. So that's a pretty fun way to do that in the East, I think. Yeah. Hmm. So there's my question that wasn't asked about West Virginia. <laughs>
1: <laughs> nice. Well, well answered, Molly. Well answered. <laughs> yes. Nice. Well, Al, how about you? Of these, of the questions what? we've seen here, which one, uh, which one jumped out at you?
2: Well, one that did uh, jump out was actually from a while ago. Uh, Daniel Lebin, you know, who's at ABC, uh, he's a bird conservationist, scientist, and so forth. He, he asked about, as a parent, how uh, have I juggled birding and international birding in particular with raising kids mm-hmm. and also sort of a up text there to sort of how to make your kids into birders yeah
1: this is a thing. common question comes up a lot on tours and in groups i feel like
2: people people are always curious about this so i'm i'm a complete failure at it actually and <laughs> my kids <laughs> my kids are like yeah my dad's a bird watcher yeah they you know and other people ask them like what do you mean well he watches birds and uh, yeah. And there's no detail. There's no, oh, he runs these tours or he does this. He's written up, you know, if, if I had to ask my kids if I've written a book, they'd probably be like, probably not, but maybe, I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and maybe it's not that bad, but mm-hmm. we already know that they don't listen to this podcast. So, right, right. <laughs> so, but the here's the thing though that I do think um, is key. It's like you don't want to have, as a parent the idea that you're going to make these kids into birders it's it's almost never going to turn out quite like you think and it's not going to happen at your timeline so you take kids out you go and, and you do i don't know activities out the beach you're hiking you're you know doing these things outdoors and then they and you you're there with your binoculars and maybe you'll say hey look there's when something really cool happens you know here's a gold, you know, a bald eagle or something, or, you know, uh, for us, remember for us here in the West bald eagles kind of cool still, you know, so mm-hmm. um, we point them out, not like you guys that ignore yeah. them out there. I right? think it's kind of adorable, but that, you know. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, like I, would, we would, I would take my daughter to see the geese in the winter and all this kind of stuff. And then, Every so often she'd be like, remember when we used to go, we used to go see all those geese and stuff. And, you know, and uh, yeah, yeah, I remember. Um, But my thought is that the idea is to get them interested in the outdoors and in nature in general, just sort of that, that being outside is part of their life. And that has actually been very successful. Like, I think my kids like to be outside. They like to be either playing soccer outside, walking outside, going to the beach rather than they're not necessarily interested in birds. But my thought is that probably when they're in their 30s, some of that will come back and go, oh, hey, you know, it's that whole nature thing was kind of cool. And, you know, uh, that's where I think it's, um, I would say. Now, the thing with me juggling international travel, all that, that's been very, that's a very complicated question because it's been my job, you know, just like, you know, if I'd been a, you know, encyclopedia salesman back in the 50s and had to go door-to-door, town-to-town. People understood it was your job and you had to be away and you made kind of the best of it in terms of trying to um, be there when important things happened or, you know, uh, what have you for sort of the family life. But it's less than ideal, let's put it that way, to be away um, when you've got family. There's no, you know, Fantastic way to sort of do that, other than to be really, you know, as engaged as much as you can when you are home. And I often would say to some of the parents, you know, like I might not be nine to five going to work, but when I'm at home, I can actually drive them, do all this. St- I have really very, you know, flexible schedule. We can, you know, head off to the hockey tournament or whatever. So there was an element of uh, there is a benefit to it, but it, it's not easy to juggle and it's not easy to sort of create a birder from a child yeah. um, unless they already have it in them you know
1: some nature and some nurture involved
2: yeah yeah yeah
0: you know this but, reminds me of the conversation that we have over and over again on the podcast about what does it mean to actually be a birder and that maybe your kids aren't listing birds or aren't going out of their way to see birds but that doesn't mean that they don't appreciate them and see Cool experiences and get excited about it. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. But um, I was just thinking about I help with young birders walk sometimes. And you kind of always start out or I do <laughs> started out thinking about how we're going to go out, do our walk, get our checklist, see how many species we see. And then you get totally off on some, I don't know, waxwing that's very obvious in a tree and ignoring all the other birds that are around. Or then you find a insect that's around or, or something else too, or even, I don't know, a domestic mallard that the kids are just as excited about. And you realize that that's okay and you don't have to do a, you know, quote unquote, bird walk or a traditional right. yeah. checklist. They're
1: not going to be as excited about the Henslow
2: Sparrow, probably.
0: Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they don't care about the herd-onlys as much.
2: <laughs> we, we used to count banana slugs on the trail. I'd be like, what's the record for banana slugs? You know, I'd be like, 11. All right, see if we can break the record. You know, yeah. <laughs> do, do things like that. <laughs> and, and that that was fun, right? Um, yeah, you gamify it um, a
1: little. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things about birding is that we we have fun with the lists and the counting and the totals and the eBird, but you, you have to have sort of, you're already kind of invested into it by the time you get into that. Like there's another element that it's just earlier on where it's just like, you know, wow things, you know, like look at Enjoy this it. thing. It's yeah. red, you know, goldfinch is yellow. Look at that thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah. But George, I think this question applies to you. Since we've talked about your dad, now yeah. he he utterly failed at making you a squirrel expert. <laughs> <But> <laughs> you seem to like the birds okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. I do like the birds, you know? They're all right. They're all right in my book. Yeah. It's funny. I had a friend the other day, very successful businessman. That's a, I feel like it's a very general way of explaining what he does. But, um, very successful. Yeah. He, like he works, in, like, you know. works in telecom, developed his own business. Um, he's done very, very well. And, uh, and he asked me, like, we've been friends for what, two decades. And he asked me recently, he's like, I gotta ask you, man, like you've been doing this a long time, just like one animal, like just one animal the whole
2: time. Like what, what else are you going
1: to learn? You know, (laughs) I was like, I was like, I love you, man, but man, you really don't get it.
2: You know, it's like it's like one it's, animal. Yeah. Does he like, think it's like a chicken? Like you have like yeah. a chicken in your <laughs> yeah, background? Like, you sort of like that's where you study or something. You just yeah. sit
0: there and look at it. Yeah,
2: and yeah. just like wow, <laughs> look at this chicken, man! That chicken is amazing. Yeah.
1: No, I I don't really like. And I was like actually struggling to understand, like to know how to answer, but um, but I was like, I, I, basically, I told him I was like, gives you so much, you know, birding gives you so much, the people, that, you know, the The birds, the diversity of birds, the, where you see them, you travel the world, you know, they give you, it just rewards you again and again and again. It humbles you. It it makes, you know, it, 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 it makes you proud of what you see sometimes. Like it just gives you so much, but we've been through that before. But yeah, I would say, you know, my dad, um, actually did try for several years. He was like, I'm taking George birding. We're going to go out birding. He's going to love this, you know? And we started when I was like six or something. And, um and I really didn't take for it. I, I like have early memories. Like apparently he took me and my sisters when we were young to see those two jeer Falcons that had set up shop in Lancaster County here in Pennsylvania at a quarry. I have no memory of it. It's probably like the first burning really? experience I ever had. I saw two Falcons. i Falcons, no memory, zero memory of it. One of them was a white one, you know, it's like, wow. I, like, I feel like that's how, you know, t- that's like, it's really a terrible experience to not remember, you know? Um, and, and then I re- I do remember like we went birding and he was like, you know, we found a Eurasian Wigeon in Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge. And that was like back then that was pretty rare bird. Now they're really, you know, not that not so rare as they used to be. And I kind of remember seeing that. But like he kind of gave up after a while. And by the time I was like nine or ten. I just started like looking at books and I just was, you know, I enjoyed, like you say, you sort of taught an appreciation of the outdoors. He does love squirrels. I was like, yeah, squirrels are, are cool. They're cute. They're fat. They're furry. You know, there's a lot to like there. And, uh, and so like, you know, <laughs> I got it. I, I just like, he built an appreciation. I think I had some of that already. Um, and, uh, and, and those two things combined, but I see with a lot of friends, sort of like you're saying, you, you t- I think if you teach an appreciation you can do that you can instill it as sort of a value that being outside is a good thing for your mental health and your physical health and uh and that it's it's just good and from there maybe that's how people can uh, you provide them a you know a platform from which they can become burgers that'd be what I'd suggest i guess
2: yeah that's uh it's a it's an interesting you know deal because you know you kind of think of like the tiger woods phenomena with his dad, you know, like basically grooming him to become this golfer and it worked, but you probably don't hear about the hundred other dads who do the same that failed, you know, like that their, their kid just hated golf and whatever. And, uh, there's a, a point where you can push too much on a kid. It, yeah. Uh, it needs to be kind of natural. And, uh, I found more that some of the kids who are really, really keen locally that over the years, you know, some of them are already in college and stuff, but you meet them and the parents kind of bring them out and they're like, okay, yeah, so and so really loves birds and and uh yeah, you know, we want them to go out with people who know what they're doing. And the parents often are not birders and they're not they're and they're kind of lost. Like, I don't know how this works and he, they're really into it. And so having an infrastructure in in all places to sort of take in younger birders to, uh, to um, sort of, you know, yeah, make them understand and have fun with it is is really important. And it's not necessarily the, the parent that does it. It's sort of there's sometimes this intrinsic thing with some people that just want to go out and watch birds from a young age.
1: Yeah. I feel like it is, like a parent has to kind of put them in the right position to yeah and then but then they'll need some help either from the, the kid themselves or somebody some other mentor or friend that comes into their lives mm-hmm. and and helps push them in that direction some luck involved
2: yeah i've also seen like the parents that sometimes actually once they're there you know they they kind of go along because they don't want to just leave the kid with randos <laughs> you know, <laughs> weird birders, Randos. and they go along. You know, a few times, and before you know it, they got binoculars, and they're like, "So, where, where can we see this uh, other bird here in the book?" You know, and it's it's interesting how that happens too. Like yes, for exposure, sure.
1: absolutely, definitely see a lot of parents
2: getting it from their kids. That probably is yeah. as common. Yeah, it's yeah. uh it's, and it's a magical thing. Like why somebody wants to do certain thing and. You know if if you do find that person who's really keen on it, it's cool if there's some somebody out there that can help them out, you know because it's it is not a thing you can do really truly by yourself. Um, uh, you know, and well, you can, but but to really sort of uh, get beyond what you can learn organically, you, you need to sort of bird with other people, yeah, for sure. But Molly, you grew up as sort of a a lone birder, right you were weren't, weren't yeah. you like not without a sort of formal community at that point? I don't know
0: yep i was I was pretty isolated um so I did grow up on a farm, a pretty big farm with several hundred acres to run on, so I was around a lot of people who really loved the outdoors um, right. and had just a general appreciation of nature. Uh but the birding I I just really enjoyed on my own. Um I guess the same way I'm still talking about <laughs> wanting to yeah. iNet everything on my property. I was just interested in everything. Um and the the birds were included in that. And uh yeah, just just really liked it and as much information as I had on it I took in and it wasn't until college until I really realized that there were a lot of other people who were doing that too. So that was me.
2: Yeah. Neat.
0: <laughs> I failed to get my parents more interested. Although though my mom will uh will talk about indigo buntings that she sees. She loves them. She'll ask about I don't know, how to find Baltimore Orioles and I'll tell her. They're in the tops of the sycamores over our house and (laughs) uh, things like that. But there, well, there was one thing. Um, We had a fairly rare state bird, a cattle egret that spent a week on our farm with our cattle. Um, So that was the first time and that was when I was still in college. Um, And enough that there were, I don't know, a dozen local birders over a couple of days that came out to see it. And that's when my, my parents were like, oh, there there are more of you. And you're they, not the only one going out to find that. So they got to meet a lot of the local birders and that was pretty cool. So they have a decent concept of what birding is like at this point. But I've also tried to, to take my mom out on a just like bird walk through the patch with me during spring migration. And she was very unimpressed and overwhelmed by the <laughs> tiny birds in the top of the trees. That <laughs> she couldn't see very well.
1: <laughs> Yeah, sometimes yeah, ducks are a real good can be your best friend, I feel like.
0: Yeah. For getting
1: people started on birds cuz ducks they're fancy looking and they just sit there and uh and there's males and females and there's different species flock together look really, you know, can be tough trying to do songbirds sometimes.
0: Yeah. People. That's exactly right. There's actually a, a two-acre pond on our farm too that has wood ducks and green heron and, and mallards that all nest there. And there are wood duck boxes that a neighbor's put out, so that kind of stuff they dearly love.
2: Nice. Hey, We, I know we we had a, a bunch of other questions. I know one that I think we're going to have to leave for next time. Those one one word bird names. I think we we could probably do another, but. Travel, right? We had a, didn't we have a question about traveling? Yes, yeah. I think that's a good, not the cheap, but how to learn how to travel in a sense. Yeah, I think that was a good one.
1: Yeah. So this was a sort of multi-part question from Scott, and it's, uh, he said, "There's so many other places we want to go, um, but as fairly unseasoned travelers, it'd be great to learn travel trips on how people make it work." Are all these people independently wealthy? Do they have a knack for planning and doing it inexpensively? What are the best tips you'd offer for maximizing the trips you take around the globe to see the most birds while doing it affordably? And he mentioned having read Noah Stricker's um, great book, Birding Beyond Borders, um, and how that really inspired him to want to get out and develop uh, learning how to, how to get out there, how to plan trips, and you know maybe where to begin um and i think this would be a good one for for each of you guys but uh um yeah
2: al you want to start off on that one um so so one of the ways we get around is that we're actually tour leaders right so we're we're essentially working to get there so we're not spending money but we know what things cost uh and that that's something um and also we we didn't start out this way, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, it, we, we've all come in on it from a different way, but I, I started just going places with you know the there were old books on travel that were the before sort of the internet you know that like the South American handbook or you know Lonely Planet guides all those things that had all these tips on how to find good spots to you know stay at. And, and I would then superimpose my birding needs on those regular travel you know, books. And I found that there was a lot of, you know, interaction there because, you know, if you wanted to go to the high Andes in Northern Chile, other people had done that not for birds, but because they'd wanted to see the the volcanoes or whatever. So I think there is probably a, you know, starting from sort of the top end trip advisor type situations to forums that are much more um i wouldn't say underground but a little less talked about on just travel those are great places to learn and you know you can go and bird from a bus right you can go and take a bus to a certain place and and then stay multiple days in in a specific lodge Uh, And they don't have to be expensive. And you think, well, you know, is it risky? Is it, is it, what is it? But people have been doing this kind of backpacker travel forever. And um, there are a lot of ways to do things on the cheap. Obviously, if you go on a tour with us, it's much more expensive, but we put this infrastructure and, you know, vehicles and drivers and all this other stuff. So I would suggest if you want to do things that are that are more um, cheaper and really interesting as you know life experiences, particularly for if you're a younger person, I would say like almost the backpacker lifestyle of birding is is how a lot of people started back in the day in, in international travel. And that others are non birders are actually doing these things and figuring them out and know what the safe bus routes are and know what the dangers are in places. And often there's not that much danger. Like you just, we have to get away from this idea that foreign places are all dangerous. Right. There are dangers, just like there are in Philly. (laughs) You know, as a person who lives there, what not to do. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly the same thing you're going to do internationally. You need to learn what not to do, um, and and that is out there. It's available, and once you know what not to do, your your risk level goes down by quite a bit. Do you need to learn Spanish if you if you're going to I don't know Ecuador by yourself? Helps a lot. Um, you can now you know work through even like you know with your cell phone you know doing some translation and all that kind of stuff it's in a way there's more resources now than ever they're just more spread out it it used to be you could just buy a couple of books and you'd get a lot of cool info now it's a little harder to sort of coalesce it all into something that's useful i think that's kind of the problem of the internet in general right we don't have we have all the information available, but we don't have it distilled to us in a way that it's like you find exactly what you need. Right. Sort of drinking from drinking from the fire hose kind of. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I would say that give that a shot as sort of like, don't think you have to go on an organized tour or that you have to go to high end places or you, and find out what country is, is really sort of, you know, nobody goes to Uruguay to go birding, partially because it doesn't have endemic birds. It's beautiful, amazingly safe, has great food. You can get everywhere on a bus. Start with Uruguay. Yeah. Like, and then learn from there, go to Argentina, which is a little bit, that's bigger, bigger cities, things, more things to sort of watch out for in Buenos Aires. But once you're away from the cities in Argentina, it's like, you know, biggest risk is you, you know, I don't know, get, chased by yama or something (laughs) get confused by one of the canisteros yeah yeah i know (laughs) i so i think uh yeah um that would be my thought yeah molly what about you
0: well um avro i mean that was great information i i've done travel that's pay for and travel that I haven't paid for. So I'd say I have a little bit of experience both ways. Um, and I, I did spend a few years in college that looking back, I think I was a bit naive where I just felt like I could take off anywhere and just travel and take it in. Um, which overall I think was really great for me. Um, I could talk a lot more about being a college age Blonde girl doing solo international travel and just how that worked. I I had to learn, as far as the safety goes, a little bit of how you don't have to be overly friendly with everyone you talk to and you can kind of stick to yourself. And it's a a little different than how I was raised, Um, but that made my travel go a lot more smoothly um, once I got used to that. But yeah, um, I wrote down just a couple ideas for this. First off, you might want to consider splurging for an organized tour if you're the type of person that doesn't enjoy the challenge of putting together your itinerary. Because if you're on a set itinerary for a tour, you, you don't have to think about where am I going to go today? What bird is this? What should I order for food? You have someone advising you every step of the way and you can really just follow along and and enjoy and not worry about all of those details or traffic patterns or what to do if there's you know an issue with your room or any of that. So If you're the type of person that enjoys having that lift off of your your conscious while you're traveling, then maybe it is worth spending more to to go on a organized tour. Um, But if you do like the challenge or if you're looking for a more budget option, a few tips that I thought about um, one were to minimize the the number of locations that you go. And Avro, you kind of mentioned this. Transportation ends up being one of the most expensive parts of travel a lot of the times um, that I've found. Food can typically be pretty cheap. A lot of places have a really wide range of uh, accommodations, including hostels, which I've had fantastic luck with all over the world. Um, But if you can find somewhere, like you said, where you can take, uh, get a ride or maybe they include transportation from the airport or something and you're not having to rent your own car or provide for your own transportation the whole time, then that can really help save money. Um, And there are lots and lots of lodges that have specialization in birding all over the world, too, where you can have different excursions and whatnot, and that's included. And I found that to be pretty economical. Um, Second, it tried to find a small group to travel with. Usually, there's a sweet spot that I found of like you know three or four people. Where if you get a few people who are going with you and splitting the cost of a room and that kind of thing, um, that can really help with the the prices too and the cost of a trip. It's really just making sure that you have people that you're not going to get tired of spending however many days straight with, and that kind of are interested in the same birding as you. Um, and the last thing that I thought about is if you were. To pick one area to spend more money on, it would be to hire a local guide and when you're there and still have some guided activities when you're out because it can be frustrating. <laughs> I can say this from personal experience if you're out birding and you just see something and you think, I have absolutely no idea whatsoever what that bird is. I don't even know where to begin in the book. Um so I've done a few things where I've hired guides even for just a few half days and then been on my own in the afternoons or something like that. And just a little bit of guidance and just learning more about the location that you're in and more of the the cultural aspect and all of that just makes the travel a lot more meaningful to me. Um, but Alvaro gave a couple recommendations on places to go. I uh, did a solo trip to Iceland a few years ago and really loved it. And that's typically not A very cheap country to visit. Um, But I just kind of camped around and Iceland was a really easy place to do that and find a bed and breakfast that kind of fit any price range. I took my own bedding and that saved me a lot of money. Actually, it was really easy to just go up to a small bed and breakfast and say, I have all this. I'm going to be in and out. I'm just birding. Um, And then I also bought groceries and didn't didn't eat out much. And that ended up being a, a fairly affordable trip. Um, I was also really impressed when I went to Thailand how many places were within a few hours of Bangkok and had that whole transportation all-inclusive. You could get into national parks or do some different excursions. And I know that there are places like that all over the world, but that was one where I thought, wow, you could do this really cheaply and see a lot of really cool birds.
2: And and Thailand's probably one of the – I would say it's probably – the the country to go in Asia in terms of like there's a lot to see. It's it's easier to go there than the Philippines, you know, in terms of the the bird, you know, kind of the birding. And it's not sort of like, oh, it's it's sort of a not so good Asian birding country. It might actually be the best. Oh, it's fantastic country.
1: (laughs) You know, I I kind of think of it as like the Costa Rica of Asia, Thailand. It's sort of like mm. the you know it's it's set up for birders, and yeah if people i always say if you're looking to dip your toe in Asian birding, Thailand is a great place to start,
0: yeah well that's exactly you know, what i did
2: i i two things came up I, I, you know if you don't mind George before I forget um one of them is that i you know I was involved in putting together some of these birding trails in Colombia northern you know uh Colombian birding trail, and sort of the 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 one that you guys are sort of visiting in Manizales and various other places, there are birding trail projects that are being organized throughout the world. But in Colombia they have multiple where you can go and look, look online and see sort of suggested places to go and a route where you don't have to do the whole route, but you can at least, um, know what you're getting into and what birds might be expected there. So they facilitate a certain amount of the planning for you and it's already sort of available. And the other thing is maybe a little tougher thing to sort of communicate, but when you travel sometimes and you're traveling on your own or with a small group of friends, when you're doing things by yourself, things are going to go wrong. Right. And not to say that it's going to be dangerous or bad or whatever, there's some things going to happen. It's going to mess up your plans or whatever. Right. Whether, those whether a bridge yeah. is
1: out, a flat tire, car problem. Yeah. yeah. These things happen here and out, and while you're traveling. Yeah. Right. And flexibility
2: is, is key. And also sometimes when things go wrong, the most amazing things happen. Like, I don't know, you end up being in a, in a place you didn't even know existed and you meet great people, you see great birds whatever it might be. But also to that end too, if you're very particular about uh, some aspect of your life, um, in particular, I don't want to say that in a negative way, but diet is one issue. It might be from health reasons. It might be cho- chose not to eat meat. You're vegan or what have you. You might not be able to actually uh, do that when you're traveling, you know, to so keep in mind how flexible you are on some of these, yeah, destinations um, in your life, yeah. or health reasons, or whatever. Yeah, some destinations so, are easier
1: than others for whatever some the, the yeah. thing might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: right. I I don't think you can go to Japan and be a vegan. You know, you can eat amazing foods. You can avoid eating beef, for example, but um, Japanese. Uh, restaurants or places make a certain dish or two and they are not set up to change that dish. Like you, you eat what is there that day and it's the way it is. Nobody sort of says, Oh, could you just put the mayo on the side? That does not happen in Japan. Right. And you just have to know that. And obviously in Tokyo, you can get anything, but if you're birding out in the middle of nowhere in Hokkaido, Um, you have to be willing to sort of go with the local flow and that may or may not work for you. And that's an important thing to know, right? Um, Beforehand. So you don't get yourself in a situation. It's like, you know, can't they just give me rice and beans? It's like, well, no. (laughs) In some places they can't, you know, you can live that way in other spots, right? And that'd be a very cheap and easy way to eat. But um, I, I do think you have to be, knowledgeable on some of the things that may not be available and how flexible you are. I I have friends who are vegetarian, except when they travel, you know, Mm -hmm. just because they've chosen a vegetarian lifestyle mainly for the sort of environmental reasons. But when they travel, they're like, okay, I mean, I'm just out here. I want to experience, and I I want to make this easier for me and the people who are hosting me. So um, that's, that's just some people, right? I, I just want to put that out there.
1: Yeah, no, it's good advice. It's good advice. I think, yeah, some flexibility with travel is certainly as a guide, you you hope that the people you're traveling with have some flexibility and understanding of that. And most people do. But if you're solo traveling, it's equally important, uh, no matter what, you just kind of have to be ready to roll with the punches to some degree because you're in a foreign land, literally, Uh, and things are not the same. And that's part of the reason you are traveling is to see things and experience things that are different. So
2: it's good to expect that. I look forward to one day going out East and being served tomato pie, you know, (laughs) because I've heard of this foreign food and that it's not nearly as good as one with cheese in it. Mm-hmm. But I would like to make this decision by myself. Yeah.
1: Well, see, if you're traveling the East, offer. if you're traveling East with me, Alvaro, that is not a decision you'll ever have to make because I'm not going <laughs> any place that's serving us tomato pie. Now, That's not entirely true. Uh, there's many, many places here you can get it. And if, if you are so inclined, you may. Now guys, we are running over the, our time oh our a normal, allotted of time here, which is not an emergency, I would say, but I did want to ask one Last question and get your quick takes. Jeff Kenny here in Pennsylvania asks, is there anything on earth more perfect than the American Woodcock? That was his question to us. Molly, I'll start with you.
0: Oh no. (laughs) All right. Here's my answer. I like Woodcocks. Uh, We, I've said on the podcast, we wanted a property that had woodcock and water thrush. But water thrush is my first choice on the property.
1: (laughs) It's a good and a fine choice. It
0: is. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Alvaro, what do you think? Is there anything more? Well, from a, you know, like shorebird uh, enthusiast and so forth. This is a shorebird. That's not a shorebird. It's a cool bird. It's got everything going so there almost is nothing that is as you know perfect as an american woodcock except maybe a mommy woodcock just because it's more you know it's somewhere else so you can go woodcock chasing all around the world or i mean there's something called a Bukidnon woodcock That, that that sounds pretty cool that might be nearing perfection there in philippines (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. And so just so that we're clear, a mommy woodcock, Amami is an island. It's not a mom woodcock. But Oh, a, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just for for those may, that may not be familiar. A M A M I Amami.
2: In Japan. Okinawa. Yeah, Okinawa down, you know, closer to Taiwan. But uh I I think they'd be cool to see some of these uh um what are they woodcocks? You know what's the plural? Yeah, um, that's a woods woodcock.
1: Yeah, I don't know. It sounds like you're not the authority though. That much? Uh, no, no. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Well, I think though. I mean, there's there's a lot of good woodcock material out there, um, and um, yeah, <laughs> and I think that. You know the there's, there's like the is it like a Nickelback song or something that they've got them like bouncing to, like when they're doing their little bobbing thing, which is pretty cool, and um, it's definitely the coolest thing that has ever been associated with Nickelback, if mm-hmm. that is Nickelback. But the and, not one of the strongest Canadian bands. Oh, honestly. you say not one? <laughs> not yeah, yeah. No, okay, no, no. good. Yeah, I just want to make sure I heard mm-hmm. that correctly. Uh, and uh, yeah, the uh, the other thing is I think sort of like American Bittern, a bird. You know, certain things are measured in the number of nicknames or colloquial names that they have. And the American Woodcock has got some great ones, you know, um, from mm-hmm. the Timberdoodle, you know, being probably the most widespread and appreciated name. But I also like Labrador Twister is another one named for their, uh, you know, their crazy display flight. Um And uh, it is definitely one of my father's favorite birds. One of my favorite birds, our our Cape Charles Christmas bird count, uh, which my father started and compiled for over 50 years, is routinely gets the national high count of American woodcock. We have sometimes had over 600 in a single day on that, which is almost unthinkable, right? Uh, We've had hundreds several times. Routinely, we have dozens there. Um, So- Short answer to your question, Jeff. No, there is nothing more perfect than the American Woodcock. I think uh, we can all agree on that to some degree or another. But with that, I think we should wrap up here. Uh, Molly, is there anything you want the good folks to know before we sign off here?
0: Ooh, yeah. We're recording this on the co-op's second birthday. So oh, wow. Birding co-op oh. shout-outs. Yeah, check out the the Columbia trip that LifeList is doing and the co-op's a part of. And our Costa Rica tour that's going in the Osa Peninsula in uh, December.
1: Yeah, that looks like an awesome trip. Yeah.
2: Al, what's up, man? What Hi. do you got? All right. You know, again, lots of pelagics happening. I have three in the next four days. so Yeah, you're in the heart I'm, of pelagic season. I'm in the heart of it. Yeah. And uh, we're, we'll see what happens in the next few days in terms of what we see. But uh, there's a few left. And then I'm off to Chile in October. So that that's going to be fun. Nice. Very
0: nice. Yeah. One
2: of the questions
1: we got was from Josh, the bird and Cox. Josh Koval, about your favorite Chilean birds. We will save that uh, as oh. well as the one word bird names for a future podcast uh with that folks thanks for listening uh we'll be back again soon alvaro molly have a great day bye everybody